Super Bowl Sunday. Um, I don't know how many Super Bowls you'll remember, but I do remember a couple where they were not as fun as they were supposed to because the score wasn't very attractive. You know, when you get those blowouts and it's like, uh, you want to see tension, you want to see drama, right? You want to take it to the last minute. It, and really, I mean, so if you want drama, this is 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is full of drama. I will argue the entire New Testament is just drama after drama after drama. And we've been navigating 2 Corinthians from January. So today, if you have a Bible, I want you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're beginning chapter 3 today. We covered 1 and 2, full of drama. Last week, that's when we introduced or we spoke of a parenthesis that Paul creates in his writings. Now, we assume and we believe that this is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, speaking through these individuals that he chose and inspired to speak to us. And from a literary perspective, he's been writing and speaking to the church, and then he pauses. This is last week. He pauses and creates a parenthesis. And the parenthesis is not going to end until chapter 7. Now, this is extremely important because he's dealing with a church that has a lot of drama. The point is the drama, the tension, unresolved tension. And in the context of dysfunctionality, in the context of drama and betrayal and rejection, Paul makes this parenthesis. So today, we're continuing the parenthesis. Now, this parenthesis that he's making, and I'm not using the word parenthesis as a pause, kind of a, uh, and actually, I used the word reset last week, not pause, reset. Um, this is the section where he is introducing very valuable, um, uh, non-negotiable, uh, transcendent information from a doctrinal perspective. And today is no exception. Now, here's what I want you, I want to take you for a few minutes and just um, think about what's taking place. What is taking place, and this is part of the drama, the people of God in Corinth, they have been conveniently, maybe naively, confused over the issue of the function of the law. Now, keep in mind, for Paul and for the churches in the New Testament, all they have is the law. That's their Bible. The New Testament is just in the making. Does that make sense? So, they, in other words, they're confused about the Bible. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you believe or do you think that we are confused today when it comes to the Bible? Oh, you better believe it, we're confused. We are a generation that we're very confused. And this is the confusion when it comes to, the, 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 and again, I'm, I think we're exactly, this is where they were, this is where they are, and this is, I think, where we are today. Look at this. They believed, again, the church believed back then, that the law was for the purpose of germination, of new birth, new life in Christ. Now, this is a problem because the law only gave you what you were supposed to do. And the problem with salvation, salvation is not about what you do. Salvation is what has been done for you. Does that make sense? It's not what you do, it's what has been done. We call this in theology or doctrine indicatives, meaning what happened already. So you, for you to be saved, you put your trust on what took place, which by the way, Whatever took place in the life of Jesus, you and I had nothing to do with it. That's the gospel. You have nothing to do with it. And then, so the people of God is conveniently, again, or naively confused over this issue. And they're thinking that it's for germination. When in reality, the law, the purpose of the law is for, we may call this sanctification or the consummation, which is the fruit. This is what the law is about. So you are saved by the person of Christ. But the law is the one who points towards Christ. Tragically, the people of God made what is supposed to be the means, they made it the end. And Paul needs to speak to them 
and deal with them because they're confused over these issues. Now, in my personal understanding of the Bible, in my personal struggle in my Christian walk, my tendency sometimes is to affirm this as my salvific regeneration experience or germination, and I believe it's through Jesus. But then, if you are like me, this right here, I still feel the, or I want to give and give me the credit or the um, freedom to choose what this means. If you are saved by grace, you are supposed to, we are supposed to also be or exercise the faith also by grace. In other words, you don't get to choose what Christianity is for. Translate that into marriage. Translate that into finances. Translate that into sexuality. Translate that in the, in the life of a church. If the church is the bride of Jesus, we don't get to define what that means. When it comes to marriage, if marriage is an institution, is God's idea, you and I don't get to define what that, that means. Does that make sense? Now, obviously, as a generation, we're in trouble because we are redefining things. And my argument is going to be, it's not working out for us, and it's never going to work. So this morning, what I want to take you into is the tension that is taking place, and how Paul is going to navigate this tension is by contrasting both covenants. The covenant of the Old Testament and the covenant of the New Testament. Now, why does this matter to you? I'm about to tell you why this matters, because I believe the struggle of these people is exactly our struggle. See, this is the key word. There's a contrast. And when I speak of contrast, please listen to me for a second. Contrast, is, this is the implication, is that they are the two sides of one single coin. Meaning, we can only speak of the uniqueness of this covenant, Old Testament, and the uniqueness of the new of the new covenant. What we cannot do is separate the covenants because it's one single coin. In other words, all that I'm trying to tell you is that when it comes to the revelation of God, He has chosen, God in His mercy has chosen to reveal Himself and to deal with humanity through this word, covenants. That's how He deals. Not only that He chose how to do this through covenants, but He has chosen the parameters, the guidelines, how to go about it. Obviously, the implication is that we, ourselves, we're not seeking God. We are running away from God. So the word covenant is really God's mercy extending, going, pursuing our hearts. And tragically, the people of God in the, in the city of Corinth, they're struggling with those concepts. So once again, this is the two sides of the same coin. You cannot, in other words, we need the full counsel of God. Does that make sense? We need the Old Testament and we need the New Testament. We need the entire Bible for this to take place. A couple of implications, because Paul is dealing with accusers. Remember I told you drama, dysfunctionality, the church is in trouble. The way he's going to deal with accusers, number one, he's not going to make it or take it personal. I don't know if this is going to be helpful to you and I, but in reality, this is almost impossible to do because when you've been accused, falsely accused especially, unavoidably you feel and you sense that this is personal. Paul, Paul has the ability to not make it personal. How do I know this? Because how he's going to deal with the conflict, with the opposition, with the rejection, and the accusations is by introducing or reintroducing what he believes is the actual problem. The issue is not apostolic authority. The issue is not a church that wants, to be, uh, that wants to be rebellious against the Word of God. The issue is that they have forsaken that it is the faith, watch this, is the faith or the trust in the sufficiency of Christ versus the 
The other option is sufficiency in self, right? In your religious life, in your understanding, in your knowledge. Paul says it is about Christ. And then this is reflected, watch this, into obedience. Now, listen to me for a second. Here, here are the two sides of the same coin. The people of God, 2,000 years ago, they wanted to reverse the order, and they thought that if they obey, now they can earn, now they can get into the good side of God, and God will bless them. And, and Paul is going to remind us in, in a few minutes that the reason why you are able and willing to obey is because what Jesus has done. Nobody, listen to me, there is no one single person that is born in this world that desires to obey God. Everybody is born desiring disobedience to God. And I'm bringing this up to you because otherwise you're going to feel the church or God is simply the person who, like a therapist that just gets you better, or maybe like a podcast that gives you training and coaching. That's not God. Remember I used the image of germination? which implies there was nothing, and then new life comes into place. Does that make sense? That's the gospel. The gospel is not the betterment of your life. The gospel is the newness of a life that is not your life. It's the life of somebody else given to you. And Paul is going to say that implies that my trust and my faith, which by the way, this right here, this word, is nothing else but the grace and the gift of God. The ability to believe in God comes from God and God gives you that ability to put your trust in this case in Christ's sufficiency what does that look like well again from a legal um, relation relationship again the obedience of the people of God now we're looking at spiritual relationship now the word relationship again I'm just moving back and forth with these words is really the word covenant a covenant is a relationship, a contractual relationship. So when you look at a marriage and you get two people walking the aisle, it's a contractual relationship, right? That I am, we are bonding, you know, one another in exclusive, the key word is exclusive, otherwise it's adultery, exclusive relationship that is bound. Now, the same thing happens here. God in the past, in the Old Testament, he was relating to people toward, through their obedience. And this is why the Old Testament is not wrong. It's simply incomplete. Because the Old Testament shows us not only that we are not able to obey, you look at the whole line. I mean, you look at from Abraham to his family. You look at Moses. You look at David. What's the common denominator of these brothers? Obedience or disobedience? What is it? It's disobedience. I mean, you look, I mean, anyways, I don't think you will call neither one of those guys as a pastor. That's just my take. You wouldn't call them. Because they, they, they were difficult. I mean, isn't that your story and my story? That we believe in germination and we're saved? So Abraham was saved. David was chosen. Come on, Moses, he was the man of God. And what happened? They disobeyed. And there were consequences. Tracking what I'm saying? That was the contractual covenantal relationship. That's one side of the same coin. The other side, which by the way, this covenantal relationship I want to say that again, was pointing, was showing, it was like a sign. You know, when you're driving from the valley over here, there are signs. Now you have this little voice on the GPS that is telling you, there is a, you know, a speed check ahead, that there are signs, they're telling you, showing you, that's exact. In other words, the signs are not the destination. Does that make sense? You need the signs, but it's just pointing you to where you're supposed to go. Now, 
Now the destination becomes the experience that not from an obedience perspective, not from a legal perspective, but not from a, in other words, obeying God is not something that you have to do. Obeying God is something that you get to do. As a parent, I got three kids. We got three kids that I don't have to love. I get to love. It's a privilege. No? Yes? Anybody with me? This morning, you don't have to go to church. Well, you do, but you also get to. Does that make sense? That's what happens when you look at this from the both end of the conversation. And apparently, the church in Corinth, just like many of us do, they're looking at this. The issue wasn't lack of knowledge, but they thought that this was like a buffet, that you can pick and choose whatever you want. So if you go into this tendency, is the type of person that has everything figured out, has everything, you know, very rigid, very driven, and, 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 and it's, it's, it's basically the, the, the driving force is what they do for God. The flip side of that is the individual that is free spirit, that emphasizes grace at the expense of simply not being obedient. Well, again, Paul is going to say it's not an either or, it's both and. At the end, the question comes, what is it that makes us, places us to be accepted before God? What, what, what are the grounds? What are you standing on to, to make the assurance that the God of the Bible doesn't simply exist, but He also cares about you? And has accepted you and this is this is extremely important because once again Paul is going to deal with the church and that now a couple of things and I'm just giving you John Calvin from a perspective of the reformers but I mean there are multiple you know affirmations over the purpose of the law and the first one has to do the revelation of who God is you need the Old Testament to know who God is does that make sense now look at me I'm all for you tell me who you think God is and your opinion matters but you're not inspired. I'm not inspired. My opinion is not authoritative. It's only what God said through the people that He inspired. Are you tracking what I'm saying? Now, again, when I speak of the revelation, I want to remind you, revelation, here's the implication. You have an electrical system that uses positive, negative, and the ground. The ground in the electrical system is to manage, to steward, to protect, um, to make something that is lethal, make it beneficial. Because if you don't have the ground on a system like this, potentially you may burn everything and you might get electrocuted. What's my point? The point that I'm trying to make is the Word of God, the Old Testament has made what is lethal because God is lethal. His holiness is consuming fire, makes it beneficial. So the Bible is the revelation of the character of God because He has chosen to work through covenants and the Bible is a covenant. It's a, it's a contractual relationship that if you obey, you get to live. If you disobey, you get to die. Is that a simple covenant? It's pretty simple, right? It, and it's going to happen. And it will happen. It has happened. What's the point? That in this case, because of the person of Christ, he is the one who absorbed and really took the, the, the um, what's the word I'm looking for? He took, he, he took this, this uh, electrical charge with high voltage. And he was consumed because of the, uh, of the vengeance and the, and the wrath and the justice of God. And that's how it becomes beneficial. Anyways, so here's the revelation of the character of God. The next thing is that it restrains our depravity or our evil desires. Because the Word of God teaches us what's wrong and what's right. Does that make sense? So it will bring 
that kind of a restriction into that experience. And the last one is that it reveals also what pleases to the Lord. Now, those three components are extremely important, but they have a problem. That This is the problem with this, okay? Here's the problem, and this is where Paul is going to address and bring into the conversation. Verse 1, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Because again, the church is questioning the authenticity. The church is looking at the Old Testament. The church is looking at Paul's you know, authority, and they don't want to place themselves under the scriptures. Now, here's what else I want to say to you guys. You know, I know as a church, we need and we will search for a pastor eventually. But the fact that you may not have a pastor, officially a pastor, regardless, the church is called, regardless, with or without a pastor, to place ourselves under the Bible. We cannot use, you know, some of this missing components and, and and you can translate what i just said into any realm you know whether it's marriage finances relationships uh physical whatever the case may be paul is basically saying you guys as a church you're asking again for us to 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 command to to give evidence that our message is authentic because you're allowing the infiltration of other views that are against the gospel and when you do that, now you put in a question mark whether God really is who he says he is. And Paul says, do, do we need to begin again with this commanding? Or do we need, as some, some of you, says, letters of commendation to you or from you? So again, the bottom line is that they're struggling with trust. They're struggling with trusting not only God, but one another. Verse 2. Let me just settle the issue, Paul says, because I, I don't have time to be dealing with you guys in this matter. Because, see, this questioning has to do with behavior. They're questioning what Paul has done. I told you before in the past, Paul was accused that he promised to go to Corinth and he ended up going to Troas. Paul, you know, he was supposed to do X, Y, and Z. And, and this is kind of a, and again, I, and I, I can use so many illustrations, but I'm thinking right now of marriage. When, when you walk the aisle, when a couple walks the aisle, they walk with a lot of dreams and desires and all these things that they plan to do. But something happens when you put the, the, the ring on the finger and say, I do, I do. I get the impression that those desires and dreams, they become expectations. And now we expect them and we demand them. I think that's exactly what's happening. Now they're demanding from Paul. And Paul says, the way I'm going to deal with your... Um, unrealistic expectations. I'm going to remind you who you are. On verse 2, you are, you're asking for letters of recommendation. You're asking for resumes. And, and he says, you are my letter of recommendation. I am the church planter. I planted you. I, I launched this church. I'm your pastor, Paul says. He says, you are our letter. And, and here's the thing. You were written in... In other words, it's not because we think alike. It's not because we look alike. It's not because we have the same culture or background. It's because something happened at a hard level. Now remember, Old Testament was about obedience. New Testament, obedience from a, from a contractual legal component. New Testament or New Covenant is about a spiritual obedience or a spiritual desire. So Paul is saying... See, you are our letter because what unites us is what happened to us through the person of Christ in our hearts. In our hearts. Now, this is extremely important for me, again, for a couple of reasons, and I'm just going to give you a quick parenthesis or commercial, which I'm not going to charge for this one, but this has to do 
with the fact that not only he is the founder of the church, so he says, you are my letter of recommendation, but the invitation is that every pastor, every church leader must see himself or herself as a church leader, as a church planter. This is why, this is why. Because Paul, now think about it, think about it. Paul is not trying to change the behavior of the church. Paul is trying to remind them who they are because of the behavior of Christ. I'm going to say that again. The goal is not to behave differently. The goal is to know who I am in spite of my behavior because of the behavior of somebody else. That's what he's trying to do. Now, when it comes to leading the church or leading your family or leading yourself, you want to see yourself as a planter, as a, as a, uh, as a pioneer, because when it comes to established churches, and we are established church, we have, by default, we have what is called baggage. Everybody has baggage. Pastors have baggage. Uh, churches, what's the point? That a lot of times, because of the baggage, as pastors, as parents, grandparents, we try to change the behavior of the person. Try to change the behavior of the people. Try to, and again, behavior is extremely important, but if you're starting a church, if you're starting from ground zero, there is nothing to change because there is no people. You're beginning from zero. You're setting the foundation. You're setting the systems. I'm inviting that every church should see themselves as a new start and every pastor as a planter or missionary because what you do is you reintroduce the basics, the foundation. You realize that even though people must change, Introducing the basics is not about people changing. Introducing the basics is about the person of Jesus that produces the change. You see the difference? Because it's Jesus who does the work. Now, the implication of this, couple of things, is that the reason is because you want leadership that actually reproduces itself. In other words, the goal is not for the pastor to simply pastor. I will argue that the way you pastor, the way that you parent, that you grandparent, is by reproducing who you are in the lives of others. So there, you guys know this, but there is nothing more attractive and more, I guess, fulfilling when you see your kids and your grandkids loving Jesus the way that you do. I will even argue that there is nothing more painful than to see your kids and your grandkids moving away from Jesus and you're trying to get him back. Does that make sense? So how do you handle this? You handle this by the understanding that you want leadership that is able to reproduce who they are, not just what they know. You want that, and Paul is trying to do that. I believe that this is how you're going to avoid those mines, uh, landmines that you see in, in life, in church, in ministry, that you step on it and poof, the thing just blows apart. Why? Because potentially, Churches, marriages are driven not by character, but by abilities. Does that make sense, guys? Again, knowledge is extremely important and abilities are important and the individual must know how to do the task. But you and I know that if you were to give me a choice between character and skills, what are you going to choose? Now, you might say, can we get both? Well, we should get both. But all that I'm trying to say is that do not compromise character just because the individual looks good in resume or looks good with abilities. Does that make sense? Because character, as you know, is what actually is going to carry this in a long, in a long term or long haul. So in this case, that's how you be. Now, the invitation, and this is a 
Please listen to me. This is a two-way conversation. This is from a conversation of a church searching for a pastor and a pastor leading a church. This is from the perspective of a daughter searching for a husband and then potentially a parent, you know, dealing with grandkids, whatever the case may be. It's a dual conversation. Here's a recommendation. When you engage into this relationship, I think this is what Paul is doing with Corinth. He's moving very, come on, say it, slow. Slow, you gotta go slow. Change takes time. No, yes? Look at me. One of the reasons why this gotta be slow is because as a pastor, as a leader, as a husband, as a grandparent, you have to earn the trust. You cannot assume that trust comes automatically with a title. Now you may have the call, you may, see Paul is being questioning at a trust level. They're questioning his integrity. And Paul knows that this is not, this is not simply, you know, historically is known because of the studies of this brother before his conversion, Paul has the equivalent of two PhDs in theology. So Paul, Paul, is, the, Paul is, the most, is the most brilliant mind ever in the history of humanity when it comes to theology. And Paul is not gonna use the card of knowledge to really command. He is going to take the time to build trust. And I think that's what we're called to do. The other thing is that you approach this with a lot of questions and you come with a very big listening ear. Those are the things that I would recommend on the search for a pastor. Those are some of the distinctiveness for the search of a husband, young ladies, young men. When you search for a spouse, this is what you want to see. You want to see, <laughs> Woo, my daughter just got married. Get ready. Get ready to make it habitual that you ask, that you apologize constantly. Because what's the opposite of apologizing? What's the opposite? Resentful? You owe me? You're wrong. You're always wrong. Do you hear the language? Versus, can we make this? In other words, a lot of times these concepts are brought into the conversation when you're going through the valley of the shadow, when you're going through counseling. When you're, it's after the matter. And, and, and what I'm inviting you to look at through the example of Paul, this is, this is normative. This is habitual. And Paul is expecting, Paul is desiring for this to be reproduced in the life of the church. Because as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, as a grandmother, the family, the business, the church, eventually is, is just a reflection of who you are. You can only blame the previous pastor up to a certain point, right? But eventually the church is the reflection of who you are and what you do. So it's the same, if we can dream with a context, with a DNA of men and women at a personal level, at a professional level, family level, if we can look at these principles that Paul, I believe, is illustrating. Well, here's what he says at the end. He says, not only that you are our letter, which is written in our hearts, even though you despise my heart and you reject my heart, Paul says, known and read by all people. This is public. There, 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 is no, there is no secrecy on what's taking place. Revealing yourselves that you are a letter, <laughs> you're a letter of Christ. In other words, once again, what brings us together as a church is not language, it's not ethnicity, it's not that we're on this side of the hemisphere. What brings us to Christ is because every one of us was born an enemy of God. I know your mama and grandmama, they taught, taught you and they trained you and you were to church when you were, all of that is valid. And I'm glad you had those individuals who mentored you. But until you came to the realization that you needed a savior, 
you are not part of the family of God. So what brings us together, you are a letter of Christ. It is Christ who wrote in your hearts, says, and, and, and he delivered, you know, this letter by us. Paul is reminding them that everyone, look at this, everyone is saved not by the Bible. You're not saved by the covenant. You are saved by Jesus. He is the Word made flesh. Anybody tracking what I'm saying? You need the Bible to get to Jesus. The Bible, the, the scriptures, the preaching, the teaching is the means towards Jesus. You don't get saved by knowing the Bible. You got to know the God of the Bible. Does that make sense? So you're saved by Christ. But once you're saved, look at me, this is the germination process. But once you're saved, you don't get to define the purpose where you were saved. You were saved now for the Bible. The only way you can, you're going to bring fruit, the only way you're going to reflect the purpose of your salvation is if you obey the Bible. I'm going to say that again. You don't have to obey the Bible. You get to obey the Bible. Because something happened to you. It's not something that you did. It's something, see, salvation is what happens to you, right? Salvation is not what you do. Salvation is what was done to you. But once it happens, now you get into the component. Now watch this. What the Bible does, listen to me, what the Bible does as a result of the Word made flesh, which is Christ, now it gives you the understanding on how to relate to one another. Why? Because you understand that the purpose of your life is to walk in Christ's likeness. So any thought, any word, any feelings that they are, that they move in the, against the character of Jesus, you simply treat it with the same, the same manner that you, you simply confess it as sin. You don't have to think about it. You don't even have to pray about it. Simply say, now, the problem for many of us as Christians is that we only have Christ as a historical event that happened when you were, when you were germinated, when you were transformed, but it has nothing to do with the fruit because there is a separation. And I'm going to say it again. This and this right here, the by and the for are the two sides. Come on, finish the sentence. Two sides of the same coin. You cannot divorce how you are saved and you cannot divorce why you were saved. Because now, watch this, when you bring him as one experience, now the church walks in Christ-likeness and you understand that you exist. That the reason why you're taking your next breath, the reason why you are on your way to heaven is for the church of Jesus to be... Look at me. This right here is the responsibility of the body of Jesus. This is not the responsibility of good preaching. This is not the responsibility of a better president on 2024. This is not a responsibility of, you, you continue, the, you, you finish. This is the responsibility of men and women who have been saved by Christ and the Lordship of Jesus has determined why you are saved. And you are saved, I'm gonna say it again, you are saved to live in community and to pursue the heart of God through the scriptures. Am I making any sense? I hope and I am. Okay, here we go. Now, let me finish with this. So again, so you were delivered by us. So you were written by Christ. I didn't write you. I didn't save you, Paul says. I'm just in, I'm in sales. He's in management type of deal, right? That wasn't my idea. I didn't die for you. I didn't even want to be an apostle and much less your pastor. 
But he says, you were, you were written, you were written, you're a letter of Christ. You belong to Jesus, even though you are potentially behaving as if there's no Jesus. And then you were delivered by us because I'm the founding. See, you came to know Christ because of my preaching, Paul is basically saying. You were delivered by us, watch this, and you were written not with, uh, not with the letter, not, not with ink, you were not written because of your obedience, see, but with the spirit of the living God. And the reason why is because before Jesus, you were dead in trespasses. Before Jesus, although you had the whole law figured out and you added more laws to the law, and, and by the time Jesus shows up in the New Testament, there's a bunch of laws that people thought that if you just follow the law, see, I'm going to say this again, look at me for a second. The law, obedience to the law, only can provide you innocence. This is why the sacrificial system, and today we're doing the Lord's Supper, the sacrificial system was the religious system instituted by God to deal with the forgiveness of your sins. Now, is that needed? Yes, it is. But forgiving people do not go to heaven. You, you will not go to heaven if you're simply forgiven. You need to be righteous, made right with God. And the only, way that you, the only way that you can be right with God is begins with the forgiveness. So blood needs to be shed. Somebody needs to pay for your sins and my sins, which in the Old Testament were continuous uh, sacrifices as they were brought into the altar. But eventually those sacrifices, I'm going to say that again, there were signs appointing to the only sacrifice. His name is Jesus Christ. But I'm going to say that again. That happened on Friday. You cannot separate Friday from Sunday. On Friday, he died, he gave his blood, he gave his body. We're going to celebrate that. But on Sunday, what happened on Sunday? Listen to me for a second. On Sunday, because of his submission, because of his possession under the law, he fulfilled the Bible, he obeyed the Bible, and he was perfect and without sin. On Sunday, his obedience and submission to the Bible guaranteed that on Sunday he was coming out of the graveside. So what salvation means is what salvation means. Salvation means that his obedience of 33 years, his perfection, his sinlessness on Sunday was transferred, was accredited, was put on your account. So today, if you are standing in this place and you have been written by Christ, and if you have been delivered by the apostles because of the preaching of the Bible, and if you have not been written with ink, not because of what you have done, but what Christ has done, and if, if today you are the result of the, 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 the you were written the tablets of the stone and the tablets of human heart, if that is you, that implies, this is the implication, the implication is that, number one, you are completely innocent. You may not feel innocent, but your sins are, come on, look at me. Your sins have been, say it, forgiven. What's the implication? Oh, this is the implication. This is huge. The implication is that as you have sinned, and I continue to sin, when the Father looks at our sin, He looks at us through the person of Christ who is standing by the Father this morning, right? He's there. And he sees us through the righteousness, through the sinlessness, through the perfection of Jesus. So God is not looking at you and saying, well, that's one. Well, on Tuesday, that was two, buddy. Come on, get it right. No, he's looking at us through the perfection of Christ as if we have never, ever sinned. Now, have you sinned? Have I sinned? Yes, I have. Who is it that didn't sin? It's Jesus. 
and his righteousness has been given to me, has been imputed. So number one, you are completely innocent. Number two, you are before God as someone who has never sinned. Number three, look at me. Number three, you are before the God of the Bible, seen as if you have obeyed the entire Bible. I don't know if you realize this, but the entire Bible, both covenants, is, is the measuring reed that you're going to be judged on final day. You're going to be judged based on this book. Does that make sense? Now, without Jesus, you have no chance. Without Jesus, I'm doomed. It's over. I mean, if you don't know Christ, man, you better enjoy it because this is all you're going to get. After this, it's game over. The judgment, the wrath, the vengeance of God is coming over you. And there's nothing I can do to stop that. I can only warn you about it, and that's what I'm trying to do today. But what is coming is basically, this is the judgment of God in a sense of, this is God telling us what is to come. But in the person of Christ, because Christ submitted himself and paid the price of that judgment, now is becoming life for us. Now is a desire that we want to obey. So technically, you are positioned in a way that God sees you as someone who has obeyed the entire Bible. Now, my question is, have you obeyed the Bible? And the answer is no. So why are you being seen or perceived legally that you have? Because of the righteousness, because of the person, because of the obedience of one single person. And his name is Jesus Christ. That is the only way. And finally, this is the last one. If you were to come to Christ and experience the double transaction of your sin placed into the heart of Jesus and his righteousness placed into your life, the last thing I'm going to say is that you are legally, legally a son and a daughter of the living God. And nothing can separate you from that. Did you know that in Roman culture, adopted children had more rights than natural children? In Roman culture, a father can dishonor a, a, a son or daughter. But if you were adopted, you couldn't do that. That's exactly what happens to you if you were to come to know Christ. And the church of Corinth, this is this, what I'm trying to tell you, the church of Corinth needs the reintroduction of these foundational doctrines, which I believe that's what every church needs, every person needs on a daily basis. Because even though this is what happened to us, it needs to happen not for salvation. It needs to happen over and over again for the fulfillment, for the Lordship of Jesus, and for the ability to stand and to walk in Christ-likeness for the health of the church. I'm going to say this again. As much as we need a pastor, as much as we need a structure of the church, this is your responsibility. You and I were responsible to exercise, to cry out to God, to seek the heart of God. Let's not create out of the church or the systems of the church a sense of codependency because pastors, sorry to break it down, they're just sinners like you. They have issues, lots of issues. All that I'm asking you is to remind us that we're just beggars, you know, crying before the mercy of God. Paul is the first one who's going to tell you he, he struggles. He's going to struggle. He's going to feel the, the rejection of his own people and the breaking of relationships and the brokenness of sin. And, and, and the end for these brothers is not going to be the most pleasant. And in the, in, the, in the whole experience, you're going to see the consistency, the tenacity. You're going to see the perseverance of these brothers and sisters because understanding of this message of the gospel. We're going to invite you this morning to participate in the Lord's Supper. The only prerequisite that I see in the Bible for you to participate is for you to know Christ. Because there is nothing magical in the juice and the bread. Nothing. 
It's a symbolism of what took place and what is to come. That's all that it is. It's, it's part of this covenantal experience. And I'm about to read to you, when we get to the Lord's Supper, I'm going to read to you the language of the new covenant because that's exactly what Jesus introduced.